0: Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks.
1: Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Charles D. Hart. Before we dive in, I wanted to ask a quick favor Would you mind please heading over to iTunes and taking an extra 30 seconds to rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it also encourages me to know that people are tuning in. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that. All right, let's dive in. Charles Dehart spent over eight years in the military, first as an aircraft technician in the Air Force, and then as a sniper in the U.S. Marine Corps. After that, he spent more time overseas serving as a government contractor in Baghdad. Charles is a well-known former mobile home park owner who has owned and operated a portfolio of mobile home parks worth in excess of $75 million. Charles now works with Glenn Esterson at Marcus and Millichap as an agent, assistant, and operations manager. He is also buying a few parks opportunistically uh, with his current business partner, Dylan Marma. Charles, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited. You're
1: one of my idols in the space. I've heard you on several different podcasts. Maybe you can tell us about your story and our listeners a little bit about your story and, and how you got into
0: manufactured housing. Yeah, so my my start was uh, Frank and Dave bootcamp was, that was my, my entry point. And so as around 2013, I was still working overseas in Baghdad and um, that the job that I used to work at, everyone had a little, a little scheme of how they were going to, it paid really well. So it was always, how am I going to, you know, nobody had a college degree and whatever, how am I going to replace this income and, and not have to work in Baghdad anymore. And so the mobile home parks became my, my little scheme. Uh, a lot of guys did stock trading. A lot of other guys did. I mean, some guys were doing little companies and oil field work and setting up, you know, tactical shooting courses. And I think I was the only one doing. There was two other guys doing real estate, and I was the only one doing mobile home parks. So that was the weird one. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, it took about two two and a half years to uh, to go from learning about the industry. Uh, to finally buy in a park and, and then, and then leaving uh, Baghdad and, and starting full-time with, uh, with Kevin. So Kevin was my, he was my mentor and business partner getting started. We, we met um, during that time period and it was, you know, through buying parks that I was able to get enough passive income to, to finally start living in the United States again. And, uh, then I moved down to Florida and we, we started doing things full time. And, uh, over the course of maybe three years or so we built sunrise and, um, that went really well. And, uh, and then I transitioned over to brokering and that's, that's kind of where I'm at today. Wow. That's,
1: that's fantastic. So what was like the initial kind of thing? Was it, you came across Frank and Dave's content somewhere and, and kind of got
0: glued in or what was it that really, you know, piqued your interest? So when I first started doing contracting. It was 2012, it was 2011, 2012. Um, got overseas, made a, made a pretty good amount of money. So I came home with maybe, I, I went there with almost nothing in my bank account and left with about 50,000. So wow. um, that was the most amount of money I'd ever seen at that point. And was that and, like
1: security detail type yeah. of contracting? Okay.
0: Yeah, it was a... Um, uh, so the, the state department, um, you know, it was the embassy in Baghdad and the people that worked at the embassy needed to go meet with um, either, you know, local officials out in town or in the green zone and we would take them to those meetings. Um, it was actually a rather boring job. We didn't, we didn't work that much. We didn't work that hard. Um, but when we did work, we were usually, you know, taking some guy out to some meeting and sitting around waiting on him to get done and then take him back. Um, but it paid really well, and so when I came back, um, I had moved in with a friend of mine in Atlanta, and his landlord lived in the same building. He was house hacking a uh, a quadplex, and he was the first guy that really turned me on to real estate investing. My uh, my grandfather had, you know, he had sort of mentioned it. He had a couple of rentals, and I kind of learned a little bit from him. But that was the guy that really, you know, once I had money, he was like, you should. should start buying some rentals in atlanta and because atlanta at that point in time had been crushed by the recession like it was it was every bit as bad as it was in florida uh in atlanta and so i got started doing real estate investing doing that bought handful of rentals um but sometime maybe a year and a half into it um i was it was the day i was heading back to to iraq I got a, I had a, one of my rentals I was selling and it was like the night before I was leaving, I don't know if it was a crackhead or something broke into the house and mm. the, the agent told me that it was the most amount of damage he'd ever seen in a oh. rental property. They had, they had, uh, they tried to steal the HVAC. It, they made it to the wood line and just couldn't carry it the rest of the way. <laughs> so. We were able to get that thing back, but they busted all the pipes in the house. the The place was flooded. Gosh. they pulled all the, they stripped all the copper wiring out. It was a it was a disaster. So I take it and, this was like an affordable housing type of rental. Yeah, it was a it was a rougher neighborhood in a um, little part of Atlanta called Decatur. Okay, um, I had a good renter in there, and I looking back, I mismanaged the the selling of that. I thought that someone buying it would want to live in it. I didn't realize that that was probably a rental neighborhood. And so I had talked to the tenant and non-renewed their lease. And we had it all worked out to where, you know, they were able to find a place to, to go. And But it was the, it was literally the day that, probably a day or two after she moved out when it happened. And uh, what it ended up being, we were in a cul-de-sac and the neighborhood behind us was extremely rough. And it was someone that came in from that neighborhood that, that did it. Um, Jeez. But that was pretty much the experience. It was like, oh, I'm about fed up with this. I'm going to have to find some, some other thing to do. And um, it ended up being multifamily. It was what I started looking at was apartments. So I was looking at apartment buildings that were maybe 10, 20 units. Um, and I was working with a couple of local brokers. And when I came home the sec- the, the next time after that, one of them took me through a mobile home park. And the owner of that place walked me through the business model. It made sense. And that's when I started looking around for something. And Frank and Dave had the only thing at that time period. That was, that was the only place you could learn anything about it. And so I went back overseas, scheduled to be at their, they were doing a thing in San Antonio and around right the end of 2013, ended up uh, attending that, that course um, and getting, I actually got some time with Frank to talk through what, what I should do to get started. And he told me to build a database. And so for two and a half years, that's every, that's pretty much all I did was build a database for two and a half years, cold caught a little bit, but, um, pretty much just nose to the grindstone, just databasing for just two and a half years. (laughs) Wow. So just to find one park, um, ended up serving me later on to buy many parks, but, it, when it started out, it was so I found it so difficult to get one that it was just like, maybe I got to make this thing bigger or something. So I just made it it was humongous by the time I finally bought one. That's fantastic. And I know
1: you did an interview with Ryan Norris all about your database, and uh, I know you've been you've been called the database genius by more than one person. so that's
0: uh that's what was awesome. what wasn't very genius is that I built it all myself, which <laughs> now being in business like professionally that looking back, that was a humongous mistake, but, uh, I, you know, building it myself, like it, it's like in my head. So mm. I, you know, I can reference it because I I've just seen it over and over again for two and a half years. I've almost memorized the thing. And has, so, have you used that then on, on the broker side of things, has that come in and helped you, you know, kind of yeah. cultivating those leads, obviously it has. And, um, I mean, it's it's something that for brokers, that's um, it's probably unique in, in in the park buying side of things. I don't think a lot of people have gone that route, but brokers, all brokers have done that. Anyone who's been in yeah. the business for five, six years, I mean, they've done exactly the same thing that I did. And so, Glenn's got a database every bit as big and impressive as as the one that I've got. And same thing, he's got that thing memorized, and you know, he's probably even better at it because you know, I don't, I don't do most of the calling or anything like that. So he even, you know, has the benefit of, of, of knowing the people personally that are in that thing. That's awesome. So it's, you know, brokers are very familiar. It's not that impressive for them to do that, but, um, that's, that's really how I got started. So that's great. And maybe you could tell us just how you
1: came across Kevin, Kevin Bupp. uh, for those of you that, uh, aren't familiar Charles and Kevin worked together uh to help create uh Sunrise Capital.
0: And that that was that was the first fund, right? Yeah. Uh both okay. uh, we did two funds. We ended up buying, I think, around 20 parks together. Oh, awesome. So we met. So the I, I when I got back to Iraq in the uh at the beginning of 2014, um, I built a, started building a database and I'd started in like areas of North Carolina that were pretty close to where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up across the state line in Virginia, but, you know, it was pretty close to Winston-Salem, Greensboro, and you keep going and get to Raleigh. And so I had that whole place mapped out by, you know, about three months in. I had all of it mapped out. Um, When you build it yourself, you start seeing things like this guy, you know, you can't really quantify it, but this guy might be a seller because of whatever reason. It's something just looking at large amounts of data, you just come across like, no, this guy there's, there's a, there's a little bit of something different here and he might be worth calling. So I started building a little list, a little side list. And about two weeks before I was slated to go back home, um, I started making calls on that list and it wasn't very big lists, It was maybe 20, 20 people, hmm. um, got down to the it, was the, it was the 13th lead that I had on that list. And he was the guy that I went under contract with when I, when I came home um wow and uh that's that's it that deal never didn't, didn't end up closing um by today's standard it would have been a pretty good deal um but back then it it was uh it was probably a, still a pretty decent deal but for a new a new guy trying to get some money together uh it, it wasn't it, it was more about me not having any experience and how are you going to manage it when you're not even there you know sure um, but through that process was how I met uh, Matt Bettinger, which I think you're familiar with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Matt introduced me to Kevin. And that's when we, Kevin and I started talking. It was June of 2014 was when that, when that started. And so, um, you know, he obviously saw the opportunity with the, the database that already built. And he had a wholesaling background from single family. So he really knew what to do with it in terms of marketing to it. And um, he didn't have a lot of the limitations that I had. I had a, for one thing I hated cold calling. I, I was not very good at it. Um, but it was also really difficult for me to make calls. So I didn't have good internet connection while I was there. So doing Skype calls, most times didn't work out. It wouldn't, yeah, it either wouldn't connect or it would drop or it would do this weird robotic voice thing on the other end. And Um, and then I had a really cheap cell phone in Iraq that, but when it came through, it had a really, it was a number you wouldn't pick up and, uh, but I could use one of those really long ones that is usually like a spammer and you're like, no, I'm not answering this. Who's calling me here. (laughs) I think the country code for Iraq comes through as five digits in front of the already (laughs) 10 digits that you got. So, so it was like answering that (laughs) it wouldn't have fit on your iPhone. The it would have had to scroll it and uh, no one's going to pick that up. And, uh, and then I used my personal cell phone, but it was about $3 a minute, uh, which Mm -hmm. wasn't a huge problem, but it, it did at least tell me the need to like, make sure that when I called somebody that there was a good reason to call them. So it wasn't just,
1: yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably why you, you know, you made sure your database, you know, you, you narrowed it down to those 20, people and you're like, all right, these are the most valuable leads I have. I'm gonna make sure
0: I get yeah, it get was get a lot out of these. It was actually very the the way that it worked out was very much in line with my my previous experience of you got to prioritize really, really well what you do because you've only got a couple of chances to do something here. Yeah. So it it ended up like it, it was probably better that it happened that way because I, you know, it it didn't seem that strange to me to have to do it that way. But, um, when I got, when I got up with Kevin though, we had a, at that point, we had a cold caller, we were sending out mailers and that's really where it started to, you know, the light bulb started to go off like this. It could go beyond just buying one park and just, you know, my, my, my entire goal was to buy one park, use the GI bill, go back to school, and then have a job and have this side park to supplement. Maybe I could get close to my income. Hmm. And uh, then it became, there might be something here where I can make a career out of this. And that's that's how it ended up doing. You know, it, it ended up going that way. That's
1: so cool. And maybe you could tell us from when you met Kevin in 2014, how it kind of progressed into Sunrise Capital, which, you know, is is still around doing awesome things and, and providing great returns, you know, to, to a huge portfolio of over $75 million. I mean, that's an amount, you know, most people dream about. So maybe you can tell us about your time kind of building up to that and then your time, you know, managing the fund and, and operations. I know, uh, you had some time there. Maybe, maybe you
0: could share that with us. Sure. At, at the time, Kevin was really, he was in the mode to buy one really good deal a year. That was that was our mantra for probably a year and a half, at least while I was overseas. It was we're gonna you know we're gonna do a lot of marketing. We sent out lots and lots of mailers, made lots of calls. Um, he did make lots of calls, and I was doing the database. So any area that we were like this is an area that we should maybe try to do something in. I would pick that area up and start. You know and start gathering all the data on it um and i managed the cold caller too i you know i was updating like phone numbers for him and and trying to manage that process so it was it was fortunate because there's not a lot to do overseas when you're doing that job you got it it fluctuates between maybe you you, you might get 60 hour work weeks if a you know a big client comes in like a senator or something like that, you, you might be working really hard down to, there were vast amounts of time where we wouldn't work at all for, I remember one rotation going over there and not working for 13, 14 weeks in a row, not having anything to do for 13, 14 weeks. So, you know, I had all kinds of time to do this. So, um, but um, anyways, we, you know, it started with that mentality. And when we Bought our first deal. It was a it was a massive home run. It was probably worth a million four, and we bought it for six fifty. Oh wow, um, that's awesome. The guy wasn't running it very well, so I mean, we on actuals, we paid probably a three cap for it. But he it was he was overspending on a lot of things, and um, when we took over, we just stopped spending money on that stuff, and it. First year operated. I think we did 160 on the NOI the first year. And uh, we bought it for 650. So I don't know what that works out to in a cap rate, but it's that's huge. Pretty large. Yeah. So, maybe
1: maybe you could share a little bit about those, like what he was spending money on, you know, that he didn't need to be spending money on, whether it's, you know, overpaying for management or or what those details were. So he had done tree
0: work that previous year and it was a small park, is 52 units. And I think he spent something like 40 grand on tree work, but really what it was, he had negotiated an hourly rate and didn't really keep up with it. Um, This guy was extremely wealthy and he, the the park was, he really had no business owning it. He just owned it. He owned it for 35 years or something. And he didn't really care. It it put a little bit of money in his pocket and he just did not care. Um, But he, you know, tree work that should have cost him $2,000 ended up costing him 40. Mm. Um, and that it was a ton of stuff like that on there. It was so obvious to pick out, you know, this is, we can probably do better than this, you know, but, um, we were very fortunate to get that deal though. It was, um, it was a very easy seller to work with. He was very good to us at the end. He realized a little bit that the park was worth much more. Um, you know, he didn't, you know, he acknowledged it, even acknowledged it around closing time and just told us he was really happy. It was us that were getting the deal. So it was That's a, cool. it was a, it was a good transaction. It ended up being the thing that got me, Oh, you know, out of the Baghdad. So I went back one more time while we were running that park, um, did another four months there, which I'm sure the guys I worked with, I had pretty much dropped my pack at that point. I was like, I'm making $5,000 a month in this thing. I don't need to do any of this crap anymore. So, (laughs) yeah, I wasn't easy to work with during during that last uh, three and a half months. But, uh, you know, I came home in April and moved down to Tampa in October. And then Kevin and I just continued. We ended up buying five parks um, back half of 2016. So we had had built a lot of momentum and and things started really, really happening. By the time we got through all the money that we had, and all the credit cards I could advance to get money in deals. Um, We were, our pipeline was, was still full of deals. And that's when we started raising money. Awesome. And did you guys go straight into the fund model or did you guys do any like one-off syndications? We did one one one-off syndication. Uh, He raised it from his wife's parents. It was a little deal out in Paducah. We did that one was a, it was an up and down deal. Um, that's really when I think that was our sixth park. And so I've never been, well, I've always been behind where I should be like in a position where I should be delegating, but not smart enough to do it. And that's when the delegating really comes into play is that fifth to sixth park. Um, when you get up to that level, you're that's where you're making break point is can you delegate well if you can you can go beyond that if you can't uh, you're gonna you're gonna really wish you didn't go beyond that level
1: yeah 100% agree that's 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 a crucial point I mean how many lots is that right around like
0: 500 lots maybe a little bit less depends on what size you're buying but I think it's it's more about the number of parks because there's six managers to manage yeah and yeah you know five managers six managers you don't have scalable systems and you can't quickly manage them and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. um, You have a real hard time once you get 20. I mean, when we got to 20 parks, (laughs) you know, I was dealing with some other problems at that time, you know, just normal things that happen to people when they come home from stuff like that. Um, But to also then on the work side have delegated almost nothing and deal with 20 managers, just blowing your phone up at all times.
1: Yeah, maybe you can share a little bit about that. I mean, I, I can only imagine, you know, uh, coming home from from Baghdad, which is obviously a very stressful environment, to then coming into this kind of bee's nest of of uh, managers that you know need communication consistently. So,
0: yeah, the business turned into for me something that it was something I couldn't get away from. Like you couldn't, I couldn't take a vacation because if I was on vacation uh, normally I was still getting calls from the managers and still needing to, to do stuff with them. Um, or I was thinking about like, Oh my gosh, I am I'm, I'm going to get called. I know it. You know, wake up in the morning. And the first thought you have is I'm going to get a phone call, <laughs> you know? And I, I, you know, I did, I had a, uh, when I came home, I had a bit of a drinking problem and I had a bit of a, a, uh, it was weed. So it wasn't, you know, I guess those people don't consider that drugs, but it was a drug problem. And so I had both of those two things going on while doing all this. And it just became so overwhelming that, you know, and, and they've been able to, to keep their business going, but I, I was, I was in a bad spot for, for a long time. And so, um, that really was what would characterize the beginnings of sunrise was we all had to deal with that. You know, when one of your partners is going through that, everyone's going through it. And so that was a really tough thing to go through, but you know, I know they're doing really well now and Kevin and I talk pretty frequently now. Um, But it was, it was a hard period of time for all of us to go through. And I think we, you know, we, for the most part kept it pretty, reasonably quiet. I think that I don't think a lot of people knew it was happening. Um, that was more them. And I, I've always appreciated that part of it, but you know, it was, it was not an easy go for a while. And, uh, Glenn ended up being the guy that kind of pulled me out of that. So that's, that's great to hear. And I, I appreciate you sharing that. That's,
1: you know, I think that that's more common, you know, with people coming back from overseas than we, we really consider. So, uh, you know, first off, thank you for your service. I mean, no, I appreciate that. That's that that means a lot and, you know, Glenn, I've spoken with, you know, several times and uh very stand-up guy and same thing with Kevin. I mean, just to be able to kind of keep things going and and to cover as needed is it speaks volumes for the character of the people you surround yourself with.
0: So, yeah. No, I I got very lucky. I got friends that you know, a lot of friends that have gone through the same thing and they didn't have no one that I know has, has had the amount of support and, um, dedication from those people around them to, to pull them out of it. I mean, some people have nobody, you know, so I got really lucky.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, from there till, till now, uh, kind of looking at, at what you're doing, I know you're, you're, opportunistically buying, maybe you could share a little bit about what you've been up to recently, you know, on the broker side. And then also with uh, Mr. Marma, you know, with your uh, couple of acquisitions and maybe where you see the the market, you know, moving, uh, moving forward. Sure.
0: Sure. Um, The brokering thing has given me a, a really good education on, you know, just really what the market is doing and who the players are. And it, it, it makes me a lot more confident as a buyer. And so I've started buying some things. Glenn and I are still working through how do we make this not a conflict of interest? Cause him and I both are very committed to each other to continue working together. And um, we want to make it work to where I can still buy some stuff and then support the brokerage team and, and, and do the things that I have been doing for the last year and a half over there. And so we're taking it pretty slow on the buying side of things. You know, Dylan and I are, we've, we've got a good mentor over there who's who's helping us out and um, we've bought two parks already. We've got a third one that'll probably close by the end of next month and we're going to buy a fourth one. And this time we're going to stop, and we're gonna get everything squared away. Um, make sure everything is properly planned and delegated correctly, and and then we'll we'll go forward after that. Um, but that's that's really what we're doing the buying side. On the brokering side, we're we're putting as many coals in the fire as we can get in there. Uh, we so, sold twenty seven deals last year, which is wow. Our deal sizes aren't. they they're norm. I think our average deal size was maybe three million or. million dollars. So we, you know, we're pretty inexperienced team outside of Glenn. I think everyone was on their first full year as a broker. Um so 27 deals was that was what was important to us is getting the experience, the motions of closing. And our guys have that now and we're starting to to take on bigger projects and um that business is going it's going very well. It's still very much in its infancy. It's still creates lots of stress and there's lots of ups and downs with brokering anyways, but um, you know, I, I couldn't be happier with the way that business is going at this point.
1: That's awesome to hear that. So I have, I have a couple of questions. The, the first one I, I would say piggybacks on the, the brokering, you know, what, what are maybe some of the common mistakes you see uh, in the underwriting process of
0: mobile home parks? Uh, maybe you could start there and share that with us. So one of the biggest things that a an owner can do to mitigate um, any mistakes that a broker might might make would be it's, it's really important to go line item by line item on the P&L and break out the two businesses. Our business is unique in the fact that there are, you know, in any mobile home park, there's two businesses. There's one business that's capitalized and another business that's not. And so just that that quality about it, if it's not broken out and it's not provable and clear, um, it's very easy to misvalue the property when it's not clear what expenses belong in what bucket. And so, and the same thing with revenues. Revenues are a little bit less of a problem, but there are still owners that dump all their revenues into one bucket and you're trying to figure out how to split it out and then prove to a buyer that that's accurate to at least some degree of accuracy. Um, that's one thing that, that a lot of owners should consider when they're looking at their own P and L's is, and don't wait until like three days before you're going to list it either, you know, like, yeah, those are structural things that you should be doing in your company to make sure that, you know, um, that your exit goes smoothly. You could do everything great and then have an unsmooth exit and your IRR is not going to look that great, Yeah, you know, and that's what you sell your investors on is that IRR. So you know, your exit makes up a big portion of that. So, you know, take the time to look through that and make sure that it's pretty clear to at least the person who's going to help you sell it um, to give them the best chance of success for you. Uh, on the broker side, the biggest, I'd say the biggest mistake is it's it's really just that. I, I think uh, the, the market moves really, really fast. And so it's really easy to get in too big of a hurry, like a big hurry and not take the time to to more or less nitpick the P&L and make sure that we're, you know, doing everything correctly on that side. Um, That's been something that's been challenging for us. Um, We usually deal, we deal mostly with, I mean, we'll we'll sell anything really as a brokerage team We're you know, we've got no problem selling something that needs to go to auction all the way up to a hundred million dollar deal. We've got experience on all of them. Um, But it is something that, you know, there's very little consistency between those types of sellers. And so we've dealt with lots and lots of different scenarios. But the biggest thing for us has been that not breaking out the parking home stuff, those expenses in a provable way. Um, maybe, maybe
1: we could, you know, touch on that a little bit, because I know you mentioned capitalized and not capitalized. Just for those listeners that don't know, you know, kind of what you're referencing, the capitalized portion of the income would be the lot rent, you know, where you don't own the homes, Right. And it's just, you know, you're paying for the, for the dirt rent. And then the not capitalized would be like the park owned home income. You know, if you're, if you're renting homes or uh, selling them on a, uh, you know, rent to own type of contract. Right. So I just wanted to make sure we touched on that.
0: Yeah. The, you know, the, any, any income that's generated by the real estate, Any income and expenses, the way to think about it, the easiest way to think about it is if you had no park-owned homes, what would that thing look like? And there are some adjustments that would be made if you had park-owned homes. Your real estate expenses will be slightly higher, um, mostly in the collection loss category. But um, the park-owned homes, the reason we don't capitalize those is it's basically like a car. So it's essentially the thing is worth whatever it's worth. And if you took that home in California and, and put it out there, there is some adjustment because it's in California, what that home would be worth, but it's not on a capitalized approach. So if I got that home down, you know, in a market where I can get, let's call it $600 above the the lot rent. If I'm capitalizing that, that that value of that home might be twice what it's actually worth. If I was to just buy it from a dealer. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really is, it's, it, you know, you're, you're basically referencing like NADA values, which is like a Kelly blue book, um, to price something relative to that value for those homes. And then if you got, you know, if someone's selling them on a rent to own contract, it's a, it's a note buying thing. So it's mobile home parks are, I would have to say, I mean, I don't have any experience anywhere else really, but, um, know i could imagine how it would be to do a value an apartment complex or retail you know (laughs) any of those things this is the most complicated one yeah you know and there's there's other components right like
1: if there's a a mobile home park there's an rv component to it they have some rv lots you know those are capitalized differently if there's self storage you know that would be you know potentially capitalized differently so uh, i agree with you and it says a lot about you and glenn as brokers to you know look at these types of things and value them the way you do you know and nada values and things like that because there's other brokerage firms that i we've all seen them that are capitalizing that park owned home income and you know that's that's where things get scary you know because it's it's not the same it's not the same value on the income stream that's coming in so uh that's that's a
0: big deal Uh, one of the bigger deals i think you know when buying parks we we probably spend more time than we should Um, we like to view pricing as, as a measurement, almost it's somewhere between where it sits today and what it could be. You know, the market is willing to pay something for the opportunity to go where it could be. Um, we view that as a measurement activity and we spend lots of time looking at deals that we've done, deals that other brokers have done, trying to measure where market is, on that so that we can do the best job for our clients. We, I, I don't know what other brokers are doing, um, but I, I know we spend probably more time than we should doing that. And that's something that we feel like is going to pay dividends in the long run because once you, I, I, I hate using the word algorithm, but once you can create some consistent measurement tool for that, which is, you know, our underwriting is a, is a representation of, of the basic concepts of how we measure price. Um, once you can do that, then you can move fluidly with the market when it makes changes. And that's what, you know, Glenn wants to be doing this for a long time. He wants to bring lots of brokers in through him, his, his program and, and, and be a longstanding name and to be able to move fluidly with the market changes and the measurement tool is critical for him. And so that's huge. why we spend spent so much time doing it.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's huge, that's, that's huge. As we move forward, you know, you mentioned slowing down in your acquisition of parks and doing it right and, and making sure the operations are ready for the growth. And maybe you can elaborate on that. I know before we started recording, you mentioned that you're kind of pressing pause for six to eight months to kind of get the operations in order. Does that also have anything to do with the the economy right now? And you know, the new administration. Uh, maybe you could just share a little bit about where you think the market's going in terms of manufactured housing, and you know, what your uh, what your thoughts are there.
0: Yeah, the I, I think we're just well timed with the pause. You know, the market has been. I've not been as concerned. I think as a lot of our clients have, but it, there is a general consensus in the market that. Um, there's at least a lot of uncertainty and a lot of people telling you what will happen. Uh, But I, you know, I I do think it's, it's probably it. I don't, I don't think it's going to be as bad as most people are making it out to be. It usually never is. And I really don't think that Biden's going to come in and try to shake everything up really, really hard because, if you, if you think about it, our, our economy is pretty fragile. And so if he starts doing shock treatment on this thing, it, he might end up with something he didn't want. Um, but there are a lot of changes that he's trying to make. And that's typical for any president in their first hundred days, they feel like they have to go do a bunch of stuff, um, which is, I don't know who who knows. I don't want to get into that. But outside of that, I mean, we're pushing pause mostly for our own purposes. we, you know, we got the advice from our, from our mentor that, you know, we're, we're going to raise, we're raising a $10 million fund. We, our first two deals are going to make up about two and a half million of the allocation. Um, we're looking for a big deal this time, something in the seven to 8 million range, uh, to take up the other, the other quarter so that we can get to the halfway mark. And it's, it's really, I think from his standpoint, he is really wanting us to um, have our KPIs in order, have our management systems in order. And it, six months is enough time for us to do that. Um, there's enough scale there to where we will have to develop scalable systems. So we won't you know, have to be looking at one park and trying to be like, oh, well, imagine it being 50 parks. Um, so we are going through those motions. But uh, one of the reasons that we really wanted to do it was we feel pretty strongly that we're going to hit our our numbers on those parks, what we've, what we've told investors we were going to do. And so we're kind of taking a gamble and saying, we're going to push pause. uh, We're going to operate them, you know, for six months, and then we're going to raise the, the next half of the fund on the operating history. We, we provided incentives for the people that came in early. We, we gave them a ton of extra depreciation and some other perks to get in early. So we've kind of balanced those two risks out, but um, I think it'll just be a lot easier on us to, to raise the second half of it if we do, you know, a job that we're supposed to do. And so whether it be six months, eight months, maybe it's 12 months, maybe we run into some issues and, 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 our operating history doesn't get to where we can raise the other half in 12 months. Um, whatever it is, that's, that's the process that we're going to go through to, to do. We don't want to scale too quickly, um, get a big mess on our hands and then try to fix it. That's, that's what we're trying to avoid.
1: Yeah. And that's, I think that's very smart. You know, that's similar to, to our story. You know, we, we could have raised a lot more money and bought a lot more parks early on, but without the right systems, it, it, it wouldn't have been a business that I wanted to be a part of. It would have been a lot more stressful. So we've kind of bolted on employees if they were the right fit, you know, versus just hiring to hire people, because that's mm-hmm. one of the bigger things that we struggle with is, is the human resource component, you know, as I'm sure you guys can, uh, can acknowledge as well. So that's awesome. So when did you guys buy your first park
0: in the, in the $10 million fund? So we bought one outside of the fund, okay. uh, in October, we raised money for that one. And then good idea- just last year. Yeah, October. Okay. The end, uh, it was October 23rd, I think. Gotcha. So we we bought that one. It's in Jacksonville, North Carolina, right near Camp Lejeune. Oh, nice. Um, ended up being a, a you know military town. Most people avoid that for whatever reason, but it ended up being a really good deal for us. And we we've done really well with that. It's only been three months, but we've you know December was December is always a bad month um, for you know, collections, if there's any month that's the worst, it's always that one. Um, And also move-ins. But we did really well in December, despite all of that. Um, We got a bunch of park-owned homes in that park. It's 140 park-owned homes. Oh, wow. And so, you know, one of the things that I've teased the idea on, at least, is doing potentially large-scale infill projects, which there's not many of those left anymore. Or, you know, looking at development. Um, we're still, it's still nothing more than just an idea, but, you know, things are starting to happen in Florida where development is looking very, very possible. Um, we already saw a project get approved out in Ocala. So the park owned home deal has ended up being a blessing for us because we're getting to, you know, we're, we're really getting to, to set up our systems to handle large amounts of homes and do large scale advertising and do large scale selling activities which are, those are the things that we're going to need to demonstrate before anyone's going to want to do a development deal for us. Um, we understand that. So, you know, this thing ended up, wasn't planned that way, but we're, we're viewing that park as that's the park that is going to create the operating history that we need to, to at least prove that once the, the thing is built, that we can do something with it. Um, so we're having fun in that park. It's a really, it's a really good asset um we bought another park out in Knoxville that was our first park in the fund um, that one's a, a, a nice property where we, we'd like to scale in Knoxville but you know it it's one of those things where if we can scale in Knoxville we will if we if we can't we'll probably hold on to that park uh, we've got a couple of things that need to be fixed until it can get a Fannie Mae loan um, we'll, we'll probably go back out to market at that point with that park maybe three four years from now if um, if we don't have anything else in that market and then the third park is in newburn which is about 10 minutes from jacksonville and that's 122 units um, it's got 100 park owned homes which i know people are on the call like oh so you got 240 park owned homes in one market <laughs> you you guys are insane um but what are what are like the average age of those homes i think that has a big uh, uh, in Royal Valley, that one's two thousand six and then in Newburn nineteen ninety-eight. Yeah. So
1: they're those are, you know, pitched roof. You know, those are nice. Yeah, those are nice
0: homes. Nice homes, um, you know. And we got a really good crew. We've got we've got a five man, well, we got a four man crew right now. We're gonna hire another one once we close, but we got a five man crew to handle renovations and they do they do really good work. So we're, you know, managing their average down days, you know, cracking the whip on them to make sure that you know, we're not, our units are rent ready by the, on average, the 30th day and get them leased by the 45th day. And we can do that. Then we can maintain a roughly 6% vacancy loss, which pretty good, pretty good in my eyes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's huge. Uh, maybe you could share a little bit about kind of your, your model there, you know, do you plan on selling those those park owned homes and converting existing <laughs> renters into owners? Um, you know, just, just what's that, what's that timeline look like? What's your expectations for converting
0: all of those park owned homes to tenant owned homes? Uh, realistically we there's two things at play. I, I believe very strongly that Fannie Mae will change their guidelines over the next five to 10 years. Um, we we don't go into deals with the assumption that that's going to happen. But I'm pretty bullish on Fannie Mae eventually waking up to these parkland homes are not really that big of a deal. Um, and I say that because there are financers now, like Vanderbilt, you know, First Bank's been in the business for a while, uh, Key Bank, and some others that will they'll finance these projects at loans that look very similar to Fannie Mae, um, with only the interest rate being different you know, three and a half percent or 5% versus three and a half. And so that's the loan that we got on Royal Valley was we got 30 year AM, uh, two years of interest only and uh, 25% down um, 5% rate. So the only difference there between that and the Fannie Mae is the interest rate. Mm -hmm. And we got that on all of it, the the owned homes and everything. Wow. And so I, I don't think it's going to be long before Fannie Mae at least reviews their guidelines. Maybe they don't lend on the homes, but maybe they open their doors for properties that have more than, you know, such and such amount of homes, as long as they're newer or something like that. Because um, I don't think that guideline makes a whole lot of sense for them. Um, outside of that, I you know, it's a long-term plan. You know, it's we we do have our customer base is the right customer base for those age of homes. So we you know the, these. Most of our prospective customers can come in. They can put a down payment down, um, but we're mostly in-house financing those to them. We've we've got a rent-to-own program, um, make it pretty easy. You know, most of our most of our homes sell at a price point around twenty to thirty. Um, we usually we're usually asking for around three to five thousand down, and we, you know, the. A lot of the loans that are out there available to them are, in my eyes, they're predatory in a, in a way where they stretch the amortization out really long, so they have a long runway of interest. Um, we we try to get the amortization. We, basically, you know the the payment. You know, if they were to go with another finance company, the payment might be two hundred dollars or something like that. Our payments, we keep them at the same level as the rent, and these and, and these customers will get through their their RTOs in about six to seven years. And so with normal turnover and everything else, we feel like we can probably get within Fannie Mae guidelines by the somewhere between year eight and 10. So I think that's a good timeline. Gives you plenty of time to kind of roll that out. Yeah, that's what we're, that's what we're shooting for on those properties. But at the end of the day, they, they, um, if they're managed properly, they have the highest cash flow of anything that you can buy at a market price. Oh, I believe that. Like a flat apartment p- complex, right? Yeah. So they they have a great cash flow um, at least nowadays. Uh, they have a, you know, really good debt options that that was the reason not to buy them before aside from the operational challenges. It was the the financing was was very difficult. Uh, now it's relatively easy. So I think there's an opportunity in those in those properties, but it really is um you know a lot of the bigger operators aren't set up to to take on those kind of projects so it's really an opportunity for a smaller guy to do and and i think that there's going to be a lot of that out there if i was you know if i was starting out i'd look at those things cuz they are they throw off a lot of cash flow and they're they're not hard to do nowadays
1: oh totally uh i mean i think the biggest risks are you know the potential turnover right? Being higher than the tenant owned homes. And then, you know, just the the relative condition of them. And you got to have a good, you know, rehab crew, like you said, you you guys have. But that's just been one of the tougher things for us in the business is finding good, reliable, you know, handyman type of guys that will will rehab these things at scale. You know, you, you can't just go out and hire a general contractor like you could on a multifamily project. You know, these are more the people that you know they're they're too busy. The GCs are too busy. You got to find like a handyman type that's still insured and, you know, has his wits about them. So it's a that's been the, the toughest parts for us. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, we wouldn't we wouldn't touch one of these things unless we could afford a uh, full-time crew to be on payroll.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's that's our criteria with these types of projects is, you know, now that we got into that one in Newber uh, that area has a lot of communities that have lots of park-owned homes. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of funny because if you go there, people will tell you that, that it's a rental area. Uh, we've found the exact opposite. We have we have had all kinds of interest from people trying to buy a home. Um, but, you know, the price points are a little higher and everything else. But we, you know, in that community, we have enough income to afford um, a pretty good staff. And if we didn't have that, I, I, don't, I wouldn't do one of those with contractors. I just wouldn't go through the brain damage of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I'm, I'm with you there. Uh, our most important question, what are the most important things that passive investors need to look out for when investing into mobile home
0: parks? Um, well, it starts with the operator, I think, and it doesn't mean that the guy has to have a ton of experience. I, I think there's a lot of guys getting in that have a good story as to why they would be successful. So I think a, a you know it's nothing that's not like groundbreaking or anything that you need to look at the the actual operator but you know I, I there's a lot of there's a lot of guys that are getting you know getting their start right now that are going to be good people to put money with um but what's a good way to vet vet an operator vet someone like that a limited if you're going to be a limited partner you should learn at least enough to be able to interview the person who's going to operate it and get a gut check on do they know this industry. So if you're going to get into the industry, it's worth it's worth learning about it and, and going into rather good details so that you can do those interviews properly. I'd say the next thing is, you know, I, I would be open to anyone's idea of what type of deal that they're going to chase, but because there are people out there that chase things that are very very specific, and that's something I've learned as a broker. But I would just make sure that they're they're very crystal clear on what it is that they're trying to do. You know, there's a lot of guys out there that are just getting their start and they want to chase after every single thing that comes across and not specialize. And I think that if I was a limited partner putting money out there, I would spend most of my time interviewing people that specialize and do a niche within the industry. Someone who's good at infilling projects or they're good at expanding parks and that's what they go after, or they're good at, you know, doing some other, you know, thing, taking something that needs a facelift to go into a higher quality loan. And that's what they do. Um, just some kind of niche. I would, I would look at that, especially when you're doing, if you're, if you're working with someone that's a smaller operator, if it's an established group, then that's not as necessary, but you know, if you're looking at smaller operators or guys getting their, getting their start, um, I would really want to see them have a niche.
1: I love that. I think that's huge advice right there. Number 1, ask good questions, you know, educate yourself so you know the space through podcasts, books, you know, otherwise, and then, you know, specialize. I think that's key, whether it's converting park owned home parks, you know, I heard recently there's a new fund that's acquiring only mobile home parks on private utilities. Again, that's a mm-hmm. that's a niche because a lot of operators don't even look at parks with private utilities. So I think that that says a lot about the operator and the, you know, the, the cognitive side of it, you know, how, how are they thinking ahead? You know, we had an interview with Rhett trees, uh, Seneca capital. And if you ask him what his, you know, what his deal criteria is, he's, he's spot on. We only buy stuff that's going to get a Freddie Mac supplemental loan. And I love that. That was like a huge aha Mm -hmm. moment for me. So that was, uh, that's really good advice, Charles. All right. I know uh, this is this has gotten a little long-winded, uh, but I just I think we've covered a ton of awesome, awesome information. One question that I ask every operator uh, is, "What does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes?" What uh, what would
0: you say to that? Um, we have uh, our fund model right now. We have three, I guess, avatar parks is what I would call it. You know, we we like a, a heavy park-owned home deal to build the alpha on the front end. Um, then we like to do something where it's a little bit operationally easier and we can get, you know, either we have a, a short-term track to a Fannie Mae loan, whether it be at close or within a year. Um, and then we we're attempting to round out our fund model. At least this is the idea for now is that we're hoping that the alpha allows us to, to build up enough uh, of that early year cash flow to take down a legacy asset so that we can go, we'd like to go into competition at times with the tree houses, the Carlisles, the big boys and be able to win. And so we think that's a way to do it and then pull in uh, probably an asset that uh, we wouldn't have any business owning because we're not of the caliber to be in that discussion. You know, and that's, that's really what we're trying to do with our, with our fund is, um, it's both a return aspect and also a balance of risk. My perfect mobile home park is that last park though, is that a legacy, legacy asset. asset. And what is that? I look? don't, look, it, I, it, I know all the reasons why people.
1: Sam Zell's parks and the coastal areas. What does, what does that look like for
0: you? Yeah. To me, it's a 55 plus Florida park. That's a hundred lots. Um, the rents are. I don't want to deal with some kind of got to get the, pers- the, the person's rents to market kind of thing. I want the rents to be like within ten percent of market. If you're going to leave me the upside, then just leave me like ten lots to fill in. Yeah, and that'll be fine. Give me some. Give me some margin on home sale stuff. But, um, perfect mobile home park is one where you can get in real easy with a really nice loan. It's big enough to where, just like Rhett said, that you can pull a supplemental out. Well. Park, some of these parks are big enough that time will just take care of that. Five years from now, time has taken care. You don't have to do any value add when you get yeah. a supplemental. So yeah. that'd be my perfect one is how lazy could I possibly be, I guess, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it does the work for you.
1: You know, right. that's, that's, that's key. I love that. Three avatar parks uh, for your specialization. I, I really dig that. Um, Charles, thank you so much, man. How can our listeners get a hold of you if they'd like to do so?
0: Yeah. Um, my email address is charles.dehart at marcusmilichap.com. That's the, probably the best place. Um, I give you my phone number. It's uh, 276-237-4311. So either place is fine. Um, if you try to get a hold of me in other places, I got so many different places that I'm supposed to be on that sometimes I might not get back to you. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, I'm not, I, I, I'm still trying to build the habit of being on like 20 different social platforms, but, um, well, I'll get there, I guess, or at least I'll hire somebody. There you go. There you go. The delegation we were talking about earlier. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Tell me, what's the, do you have a website for your fund with Dylan? Uh, we do. It's the dot com. Okay. Awesome. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Charles and, and sharing appreciate you, having me, you know, uh, so much valuable information. I mean, there were several golden nuggets in this interview that I'm sure the listeners are going to eat it up. So thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you. Uh, that's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks a lot. Would you like to see Mobile Home Park value-add projects in progress? If so, follow us on Instagram at Passive MHP Investing for photos and awesome videos from our recent mobile home park acquisitions. Once again, that's at Passive MHP Investing on Instagram. See you there.